Hey, it's Cecilia. The Fifth Emission team is taking the week off, but we're highlighting one of our favorite episodes today. It's a reported story from February that dives into one of San Francisco's most challenging problems. It's by Chronicle reporter Trisha Thadani, who takes you into the tenderloin, the heart of San Francisco's fentanyl epidemic. This drug, is, it, has, it, has, it gets a hold of these people, man, and it don't let them go. It's before sunrise on the corner of Golden Gate and Hyde, and Damian Morfitt and his team are already working. Morfitt is a lead security guard for La Cocina, a food hall run by immigrants and women of color. He acts as security patrol, cleans the surrounding sidewalks, and pulls the boards off the windows at the start of each day. Yeah, we gotta take them off. Let the sun shine in. Every morning, Morfitt and his team sweep up trash and needles and nudge drug dealers and drug users away from the entrance of the business. It's what he has to do to open the doors of La Cocina. And sometimes that means tense arguments, too. La Cocina is located in the Tenderloin, the epicenter of San Francisco's fentanyl crisis. You got people laid out on both sides of the street. You got the dealers right here and on both sides of the street. If you were a fentanyl user or a crystal meth user or a heroin user, you didn't have to go anywhere. You just, you could sit right here, get high, and pursue your drug from the people that's selling the drugs right there. In the past two years, over 1,300 people have died from drug overdoses in San Francisco, and fentanyl was found in the systems of nearly three-quarters of the victims. Every day, people like Morfitt witness the devastating effects of the highly addictive opioid on the neighborhood. Because once it gets a hold of you out here, it's got you. I've seen beautiful women, beautiful young ladies. I've seen handsome men turn into old, decrepit people. And they're less than 30 years old. There's been more fentanyl deaths, overdose deaths, been COVID deaths in San Francisco. But San Francisco don't want to talk about that. San Francisco isn't alone. Fentanyl has infiltrated communities across the country, especially during the pandemic. It's pushed the number of national overdose deaths well above 100,000 for the first time in history. In San Francisco alone, millions of dollars have been poured into this issue. But the city's response is only a drop in the bucket of what is needed to address a public health crisis of this scale. And the city is struggling to reach those who desperately want help, like a man I met last year named Anthony Alexander. Anthony is smoking fentanyl inside his 80-square-foot hotel room in the Mission District. He's 42, formerly homeless, and suffers from depression. It's been my problem my whole life, the depression. The drugs are a part of that, but the depression's the big thing. I'm not suicidal. I don't want to kill myself, but I don't have a real strong will to live or take care of myself sometimes. Anthony says fentanyl helps him cope, and it's become an essential component of his day-to-day. He makes daily trips to the Tenderloin to buy it, and sometimes that's the only social interaction he gets. It's weird because it's like, Fentanyl to me isn't that, it's not that strong. I don't feel it that hard. But there's something that makes me want to keep doing it. That compared to cigarettes, you know, it's like pesky. 
Chronicle photographer Stephen Lamb and I followed Anthony for a year as he tried to overcome his addiction. He is a warm and gentle demeanor, and he often shares intelligent musings on life and the world around him. I rode the drug thing to the bottom, and I don't like it there. <laughs> I think more of myself than what I've been doing and think I'm capable of more. I'm not going to beat myself up for the journey I've been on. But like other older black men in San Francisco, Anthony is part of a population that is disproportionately suffering from the fentanyl crisis. He used to be a basketball player and boxer in his Florida hometown, and he was also in a special program for students with high IQs. But that former life is a far cry from where he is today. Without fentanyl, Anthony says the mental and physical pain is just unbearable. He hopes that resources in San Francisco can help him. The two big reasons I wanted to come out here were because there's more opportunities as far as social services. And I like the community out here. And also being homeless in your hometown is a little embarrassing. It's a little bit harder. Anthony has tried to overcome his fentanyl addiction many times. But he's run into different challenges, from getting turned away from the city's detox center to relapsing because Walgreens couldn't fill his prescription for a withdrawal medication in time. This is a common experience for people on San Francisco streets. While the city is working on expanding its number of treatment beds, there are not nearly enough to support the scores of people who are struggling with drug use and who are looking for help. But despite everything Anthony's faced in San Francisco, he always says that the biggest barrier is himself. I've never been in love with the idea of being a drug addict and not being in control of my life. All my decisions are mine. And nobody can stop me from doing it. It's going to have to be me that doesn't do it and that values other things so that I choose not to do it. And I'd rather be doing something else. Many of the new programs rolled out in the city over the last year, like the street outreach teams, are focused on those who are visible on the streets. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are also many others, like Anthony, who are just alone in their rooms, silently struggling and not bothering anyone else. Still, in December, Mayor London Breed declared a state of emergency in the Tenderloin, honing in on quality of life issues and visible drug use. It was an attempt to quickly remove the red tape needed to open a service center where people can get resources for addiction and housing. This came shortly after she kicked off her re-election campaign, and she made a strong statement advocating for heavier policing for both drug dealers and users. And we are going to make people who are dealing drugs who are using drugs out in the open with no regard for the community, people who are assaulting and spitting on and stabbing and shooting and destroying this community, we are going to make life hell for them. I chatted with Mayor Breed about that comment in January, particularly when she said she wanted to, quote, make life hell for drug dealers and users. She clarified her statement by phone. What I meant was that applied to people who are publicly and blatantly breaking the law as it relates to violence and as it relates to drug dealing. Mm-hmm. And as it relates to people who are suffering from addiction, the goal is to get them off the street. Breed said she'd prefer to not rely on police, but San Francisco should still do whatever it can to remove people from the streets, including citing people for breaking the law. That includes the sit-lie ordinance, which allows officers to issue a ticket or misdemeanor for sitting or lying on the city streets. Our goal is not to just leave them there. They're going to have to go somewhere. 
But critics say Breed's approach would criminalize addiction rather than solve its root causes. And what does it do for people like Anthony, who badly wants to kick his addiction, but sometimes uses outside? Family members say that solutions begin with humanizing the people who are suffering from their addictions. I look at every one of those people that are shooting up in the alleyways, or, and they're just so out of it. I'm like, that's somebody's son, or daughter, or mother, or cousin. Kelly Sanfield is the mother of 27-year-old Morgan, who is addicted to fentanyl and lives in San Francisco. Those are humans, and how did we, how did we let them get to this point where they're just... They're abandoned, you know? Kelly's been trying to get her son treatment for more than 10 years, but he's been reluctant to give up his independence and quick access to fentanyl. He's already overdosed dozens of times, but he survived thanks to Narcan, a nasal spray that reverses overdoses. I can't force him to get clean and sober. I can do everything in my power to try and talk him in and guilt him and love him. You know, but it's ultimately, I know it's up to him, which is really, really hard because as a mom, you want to fix things. That's my son. I want to make him better. And I can't. Kelly lives in Roseville, which is near Sacramento, and she makes regular trips to San Francisco to see Morgan. During some visits, Kelly helps him out by buying him new clothes and food and taking him to a barber. One day last year, she brought along Morgan's grandmother for lunch. After they ate grilled cheeses and walked around Market Street, Grandma told him about the high hopes she has for Morgan. I pray for you every day, and you're on a whole bunch of prayer chains in Kansas. Well, good. I think it's working. And they always ask about me. They don't even know you. Really? How's that grandson of yours, Morgan? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Morgan's doing good, and he's going to do better. And when he gets better, he's going to come to Kansas, meet some beautiful, big Swedish farm girl. (laughs) (laughs) These sweet moments with Morgan, though, are rare. Most of the time, Kelly waits for her son's call at home, hoping he's still alive. Sometimes when a longer period goes by, I'll call the coroner's office and see if they have any unidentified bodies with specific tattoos. He's really good about trying to stay in touch. But when he doesn't, it is very heartbreaking and nerve-wracking, and I would lay awake all night just thinking, is, is he okay? In a September visit to Kelly's home in Roseville, the Chronicle reporting team captured one of the many anxious calls that Kelly has with Morgan. You okay? Seems like you, you need some help, Morgan? Morgan? Hello? I mean, do you want to try and go to detox? Ultimately, Morgan didn't choose to enter treatment. But that doesn't mean Kelly will give up. She's scared, though, that fentanyl has sentenced her son to a lifetime of addiction. The greatest fear is that he's going to be that 70-year-old guy living on the streets. And that he's, this is his life forever. And he's not ever going to have happiness. Of course, the biggest fear is that he's just going to overdose and die alone in the streets or in that hotel room at the age of 27, you know. I honestly don't know what's worse. More with Trisha Thadani after a quick break. 
I'll chat with her about how she reported this story and multimedia project with the rest of the Chronicle team, which included photojournalist Stephen Lamb, multimedia editor Guy Wathen, and data reporter Yu Hyun Jung. It's online now at sfchronicle.com slash fentanyl. We'll hear more of Trisha's reporting, including how Mayor Lyndon Breed responds to critics of her crackdown in the Tenderloin. We'll be right back. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Before the break, Chronicle City Hall reporter Trisha Thadani took us into the lives of two people she followed for the Chronicle's project, A Disaster in Plain Sight. You can find it online now at sfchronicle.com slash fentanyl. Before we get back into the story, Trisha, I wanted to ask you, I know you've done other reporting on fentanyl before. What sets this story apart from the rest of the fentanyl coverage that the Chronicle has done in the past? Yeah, so as a City Hall reporter, I've spent much of the last few years um, really covering this epidemic through a policy lens. Uh, So that means, you know, writing about new legislation proposed by the mayor, the board of supervisors, talking about new budget proposals, uh, new policies they want to implement, stuff like that. I felt that that was starting to get a little disconnected from the reality of what was happening on the ground. Um, So with this project, I really wanted to bring readers into the lives of people who were actually in the throes of this epidemic themselves and and really show what an impact a policy decision can have on one person's life. And of course, working on a story that's long term like this gave you the opportunity to build relationships with people for the story. And that includes Anthony Alexander, who we just heard a little bit about his story. It's really compelling to hear how self-aware he is about his addiction and what it will take to overcome it. Tell me about how you met him and how did you establish the trust that was needed to follow him for an entire year? I met Anthony about a year ago um, when I was I was I was looking for someone um, who I would be able to follow through their addiction, and it was like a source of a source of a source that had eventually led me to Anthony. And you know, when you do um, do a project like this and basically enter someone's life um, for this a period of time, I mean, it takes a lot of trust, obviously, to build up with the person, and so. Even before, like, I took a notebook out or started recording or really had, like, an idea of the direction that I wanted to take this story in, um, Anthony and I kind of got into a a habit of, like, meeting in the park every single week, um, and we would just talk about life. I would learn more about him. Um, We would, like, you know, we would spend maybe a little bit of time talking about his addiction, but I was really just trying to learn more about him and, um, you know, create create a friendship and a relationship with him. As we would have these meetings in the park, one day he comes and he was like, well, I'm thinking of um, starting to try and go into treatment. And uh, from then on, you know, we had we'd gone to him with these to doctor's appointments, to drop in centers. um, And we really became part of his life in, in that way. He is just such a honest and smart and intelligent and compassionate and self-aware person. And his motivation for uh, sharing the story is, you know, you as you can tell from just hearing him speak um, and reading his story, like he does not want this life. It's, it is so clear that this is not what he planned. And he knows that he, you know, is destined for so much more. Um, and he, you know, hopes by sharing his story and his journey through it, he could help inspire others as well. 
And I think anyone in San Francisco knows that talking about fentanyl, you know, it's become sort of this political flashpoint. It overlaps with other concerns like policing and public safety, housing. Did you notice in your reporting when you were, you know, trying to learn more about fentanyl, you found yourself having conversations about other hot button issues in the city? It is impossible to talk about the city's overdose and opioid epidemic without talking about a whole other tangle of issues like policing and housing and discrimination and poverty. Um, everything is wrapped up into each other. Um, and that's what made that's what makes reporting about this issue so complicated because everyone wants to know, like, what is the solution? What are we not doing? Um, and, you know, San Francisco is doing a lot and a lot of money is going into this issue. But at the end of the day, what you hear over and over and over again is that you're never really going to address this issue until you hit those root causes of you can provide people with proper and accessible mental health care, um, incredibly accessible drug treatment and also stable and secure and affordable housing. Well, Trisha, let's get back into your story. In this next part, we're going to dive into how San Francisco is trying to manage its fentanyl crisis. And I think also we'll be able to question whether or not the city is actually addressing the root causes, like you mentioned. And we'll also look at the limits of the city's treatment plans. San Francisco takes a harm reduction approach to help people who use fentanyl. The city gives people the tools they need to use drugs as safely as possible, like providing clean needles and Narcan. Critics say the strategy enables users and that treatment should be mandated, but harm reduction advocates say it's important to meet people where they are. Addiction is complicated and recovery isn't linear. For example, Anthony, who we met earlier, once completed a three-day detox in a city clinic, but he later relapsed. Over the next few months, I would watch him go through the same cycle, detox, relapse, and repeat. One Thursday afternoon, I followed Anthony as he met with Jason Blantz, his longtime nurse practitioner through the city street medicine team. The two have known each other for years. Public health in action. Right. Hello, Anthony. Anthony tells Jason that he wants to start therapy, and he shares some good news. He's on day five of a fentanyl detox. Typically, fentanyl withdrawals are so harrowing that people can't go a few hours without it. But Anthony has made it to five days. I've been... Seriously cutting back on the amount of fentanyl I smoke. It's been like five days now since I smoked. Fantastic. It's going antsy. Of course, there's a long road ahead for Anthony. It'll take a tremendous amount of willpower to stay away from the drug. Anthony's nurse practitioner, Jason, also admits that the city's system of care really struggles to help people who aren't in an immediate crisis. You've been like on a low burn and you never ask for anything, you're just, you know, in your room and therefore it's very easy as a program to kind of fail to attend to you, your needs. In my January phone call with Mayor Breed, I mentioned what Jason said, that the city isn't great at reaching those who aren't in crisis mode and that it sometimes depends on people to sound the alarm when they need help. She was frustrated with that notion. The case manager is supposed to be the person Mm -hmm. who knows about options for that person. Mm -hmm. As you can see, he has a case manager. He mm -hmm. has a roof over his head. And so here you got the, the case manager that's getting paid probably by the city 
to help support this person. So don't point mm-hmm. out the system when you're supposed to be, as a case manager, a part of the solution. From Anthony's perspective, Jason seems like everything you'd want a case manager or nurse practitioner to be. Jason has gone out of his way to keep in touch with Anthony. He visited him frequently while he lived on the streets to tell him what resources were available. And then later, he would knock on his door at the Mission Hotel whenever he didn't hear from him for a while. But there's only so much that someone like Jason can do when the city's treatment programs and resources are so limited. Anthony sounded hopeful in his meeting with Jason. But when we met in the park later that month, he told me he had relapsed again. What do you think is holding you back the most? Just not giving a fuck. Just not giving a fuck, he says. I tell him that depression can do that to anyone and that it's not his fault. I tell him I'm rooting for him. And Anthony says he's hopeful. I can do it. I just have to get good habits and trudge through it until it becomes normal again. And then just don't throw it all away. I'm struck by what Anthony is saying here. Not only does he want to kick his fentanyl habit, but he also knows that he's the only one who can do it. No excuses. And perhaps that's not a side that many people see when they pass someone using fentanyl on the street. It's a reminder that addiction is complicated and it can trap people in a life that they don't want. But even when they get to a point where they're ready for help, the city isn't always ready for them. For Fifth and Mission, I'm Trisha Thadani. You can learn more about Anthony as well as Kelly and her son Morgan by visiting Trisha Thadani's story, Fentanyl, A Disaster in Plain Sight, at sfchronicle.com slash fentanyl. She reported the story alongside Chronicle photojournalist Stephen Lamb. They collected the audio you heard in this piece. Multimedia editor Guy Wathen also contributed audio. The episode you just listened to is a slice of the full project. Again, it's online at sfchronicle.com slash fentanyl. This episode was written by Trisha Thadani and me, Cecilia Lay, and edited by King Kaufman. King and I produced the episode with help from Sarah Feldberg and Karen Creighton. Thanks to Trisha's partners on the story, Stephen Lamb, Guy Wathen, and Yu Hyun Jung. And thank you for listening. 